This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by the Top Producer Summit, coming up February 14th through the 16th in Nashville. Learn more at tpsummit.com and stand by for a way to save 25% on your registration. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. It's easy for farmers to believe that the folks in Washington know little about writing agricultural policies that really help the folks out in the field. Perhaps rightfully so. Who are the people who developed that policy? What is their background? How do they decide what is a priority and what do they tell the president? Meet the man who filled the key position. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by the Top Producer Summit. Many of you are familiar with the Top Producer Summit. Perhaps you've attended or thought of attending. Now there are two great ways to participate. The upcoming Top Producer Summit will be held in Nashville, Tennessee, February 14th through the 16th. This is the summit's 25th year, and there are always plenty of great and informative sessions, interesting speakers, and opportunities to meet and learn from others in the farm and ag industry. All told, there are over 40 speakers with timely topics and important information for those in agriculture. If you can't get to Nashville, join us online the following week, February 22nd and 23rd, for more exclusive content. Hopefully, that's all of interest, but here's something else that is very important. You can take 25% off your registration with the code FARMING at tpsummit.com. Again, take 25% off your registration by using the code FARMING. Just go to tpsummit.com to register. I've often wondered who it is that advises U.S. presidents on what should become agricultural policy. After all, it's been since Jimmy Carter that we had a president actually from a farm. Who is it that's advising the president? On this show, I'll introduce you to one of the people who held that position, Ray Starling. He has quite a story about how he wound up with a job in the White House, and he offers insights on what the person in his role does and how he personally views the future of agricultural policy. Plus, he's got some really interesting stories including how he about missed out on the job because he confused the White House for another caller. Here's our conversation. I'm visiting with Ray Starling. And Ray, for those that don't know you, you grew up in North Carolina. You're back in North Carolina. We can pick up a lot of parts of your story, but I think the part we'll pick up today is about four years ago, you were in the White House. Talk about how you how you wound up there. Yeah, so I had gone to Washington, D.C. with Senator Tom Tillis. I had been his ag advisor here in the state of North Carolina and his attorney. And when he became a senator, he got a slot on the ag committee. He also got a slot on the judiciary committee. And so I decided, hey, if there's ever a time to go to Washington and learn how that community of policymakers works, this is it. Uh, so I followed him to D.C., took my family up there. That was obviously sort of an interesting way to go about it mid-career. Most of the folks you see in Washington working on a senator staff or, you know, average age of 23. Uh, and I learned after trying to do it in my 40s why that is. It's a pretty hard transition, a pretty hard city to move into on a government salary and a teacher's salary. Uh, did, did work for Senator Tillis for a couple of years and then, frankly, got a surprising phone call one morning. Uh, and about two hours later, found myself walking through the gate uh, at the White House uh, and sitting down in the West Wing and waiting to interview with Gary Cohn, who, the, who President Trump had tapped to lead the National Economic Council. And on the National Economic Council, there were eight different folks, each who had a responsibility for a different segment of the economy. 
So there was like a transportation and infrastructure expert. There was a financial services expert. There was an energy and environment expert. And there was an agriculture person. There was a slot for someone from the ag sector to be on that team. And rumor was they wanted a traditional ag person that had some, you know, real had been around a farm, uh, had been in ag policy for a while and kind of knew where the uh, pinch points were. Um, I got the chance to interview and then uh, literally two days later went back a second time to meet directly with uh, with Gary, the director of the National Economic Council, and he reached across the table and said, welcome to the team. So uh, this all happened in about two full business days. And, and he literally said, can you be here tomorrow? The answer to that, of course, was no. I was serving at that time as, as uh, Senator Tillis' chief of staff, so there had to be a little bit of unwinding of that role. But I got over there as quick as I could and, uh, and went to work. Talk about that position. Was that a newly created position, or is that a position that all presidents, in a sense, have? That's a great question, and there's a great story. So actually, in the 1985 Farm Bill, a provision was put in the, in the bill that said the president shall have, at the rank of special assistant to the president, which is a commissioned officer within the White House, uh, must have an agri- a person with agricultural expertise on his staff. What makes that story interesting is... Uh, President Reagan was actually advised to not sign the 1985 Farm Bill only because of that provision. There was a lawyer in the White House Counsel's Office that says that is unconstitutional. Congress cannot tell the president how to staff his office. Well, it turns out Reagan was you know, pretty savvy politically, and he certainly was not going to veto the, the 85 Farm Bill, given what was going on in the farm community in the early 80s. Moreover, that lawyer, I think, has done okay, notwithstanding giving the president that advice. Uh, His name is John Roberts, and he is now the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. So notwithstanding his advice uh, that that position should not be laid out that way, there is a statute on the books that says the president has to have this expertise somewhere within the White House. Uh, it, It is not necessarily enforceable. Uh, And as a matter of fact, President Obama did not have that role filled the same way that we did in the Trump administration. Uh, With that said, I'm I'm not picking on uh, Obama's administration. They did have several people in the White House that sort of followed rural issues. And from time to time, there was a a person that tracked ag issues uh, there in in one of the units within inside the White House. But I was the first one to come back uh, since the since Bush 43 uh, had had folks in that role. So pretty much from Reagan all the way through the Obama, it was filled the, the traditional way, the same way I did it. Uh, and then my understanding is now President Biden has filled that position, uh, although I don't think it's as public-facing as, as I was sort of expected to be when I was there. When you entered that position, perhaps it was because you were better known in the ag community, but suddenly people were aware of not only who you were, but this position existed. Am I right in saying that? Because I don't think before then a lot of people really knew that this position existed in the White House. I think that's exactly right. And, and frankly, I, I wanted to leverage the position. I mean, I felt like this was uh, an opportunity for ag to really be at the table. Um, I felt like my boss wanted me to take my immediate boss, not just the president, but, but I felt like the director of the National Economic Council wanted us to work with this community. And really what he challenged us, and in fact, my, in my interview, he asked me, if I were to ask you to identify what are the biggest, largest, most formidable uh, challenges to economic growth in the ag sector, what would you identify those to be, and how do we work to eliminate those? And, you know, the answer then was, frankly, 
exactly as the answer is now. The number one thing was labor. So that was going to set up an interesting conversation, right? Because you had President Trump out there really making some comments about, in particular, immigrant labor that the ag community you know, didn't really feel great about, right? I mean, we totally depend on a foreign workforce to get our crops in, particularly our seasonal things. And so, uh, but, but and, and one of the questions I asked Gary in the opening interview was, if we're not going to work on that, if we're not going to try to make progress on that, notwithstanding that there are you know, clearly already markers laid down on that topic, I, I don't want to be here, right? Because I think that's what farmers are going to expect us to make some progress on. Uh, of course, we made a little, not nearly enough. And, and, of course, that issue has vexed Washington for 30 years. Uh, but with that said, you know, the idea was what are, what are the things limiting economic growth in your sector and how do you get them out of the way? So what were some of the other things that you laid out then? What was on your mind that you thought were the pressing issues, and maybe they still are today? Yeah, well, certainly broadband. And so remember, this is pre-COVID-19. This was, uh, we were the canary in the coal mine saying that, that parts of rural America are sort of falling behind in terms of being in the connected age. Uh, we talked about infrastructure back then. I actually threw that one in because I thought it was going to fit nicely with, with an effort that the president might endorse on infrastructure. And the joke around the White House was it was there was a perennial uh, infrastructure week. We just never actually got around to uh, proposing something that looked like it could work. And so uh, all that said, uh, infrastructure, which I included in my thinking about infrastructure, you know, there's a lot in the ag sector that, that we frankly take for granted, our land-grant university system, uh, our, our agricultural research service, even the economic research service at USDA and the data we get there and the things we're able to learn that, frankly, other sectors don't have a unit in the federal government that tracks you know to the level of detail that we do in the ag space. Now, there's a lot of debate out where you're from about how well they do that. I get that. Uh, uh, and, and that's very fair. But, uh, but with that said, you know, infrastructure, uh, broadband, uh, immigration. Um, and then, of course, it was on everybody's mind. Everybody knew that in 2018, the Farm Bill renewal was up. And so there'd be really hard conversations about where is Title One? You know, wh- where does a Republican president land on the crop level supports in, in Title One? What about crop insurance? Um, so those are those were some of the t- highlights. Do you know now why you were asked to, to come there? How did Ray Starling wind up in that position? <laughs> you know, it's uh, I, I'd like to give you a great answer and tell you that uh, uh, that, that clearly they recognized my wisdom and my expertise from afar. But, it, you know, Washington is, is a really big, small town. And when you break down in Washington to the different subsets of the economy, there, there's an energy crew, you know, there's a financial service. Most of the staffers that graduate out of staff work and into public policy influence work, you know, literally becoming lobbyists, they'll stay in the same policy vertical, right? They'll figure out what issues do I like? What issues, you know, do I get smart on? And then they stay in that industry for their career. And so uh, fortunately, while doing ag work for Senator Tiller, Tillis, I had gotten to know one of the gentlemen that had been the former ag advisor to President Bush. Uh, and my understanding was that he recommended me to someone on Gary Combs' team and that that recommendation went a long way. Uh, all the more reason to be nice to everybody. Uh, and and uh, so, frankly, it was, you know, there was a door open there by a contact or a friend that I knew. Uh, and then I think, frankly, being just ready to have the conversation because I didn't get any prep time. I mean, literally, I called them back on a Tuesday morning. Uh, let, let me go a little deeper. I actually got a voicemail from them on Sunday, but it was from a number I didn't recognize on my cell phone, so I never listened to it. 
And on Tuesday morning, I get this call that says, Ray, why aren't you calling the people at the White House back? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they had called me on Super Bowl Sunday. I actually thought it was a guy I was trying to chase down off Craigslist to buy firewood from. And I was like, I'm not calling it. You know, I'm, not, I'm not listening to that voicemail on Sunday afternoon uh, when the Super Bowl's on. Uh, turns out it was it was uh, Gary Cohn's deputy, a guy named Jerry, Jeremy Cotts, who had also been in the uh, Bush White House. That's that's why he was listening to to my friend. And uh, to make a long story short, when I finally figured out what was happening, I called the guy at the White House and said, "Sorry, I hadn't called you earlier, but you know, here I am. Would you like to talk?" And he he basically said, "Yeah, can you get here in about 90 minutes?" And so that's not a lot of time to prepare for how you're going to answer the question. You know, why should we hire you at the White House? But um, it was, I guess it was, as they say, meant to be. So uh, fun stuff. Tell me about the first meeting you had with the president. So there's a funny part of that, and then there's a substantive part. I mean, really, the first meeting was about laying out for the president what what does he need to know about the ag community. Here's a real estate guy from New York. Uh, and it was important for me to tell him, and I actually worry about this, Andrew. We could talk about this in a different setting. It was advantageous for me to tell him at the time, obviously, since he was just elected as a Republican president, that Agriculture America was largely with him. Like if, if he were to look at the map, if he were to go to some of our farm organizations' meetings, he would he would win the straw polls, right? Most folks in the ag sector were pulling for President Trump. So it was important for me to tell him that in the states he carried, agriculture was either the number one, number two, or number three interest, uh, or industry rather, in about 40 of them. Now, ag's, ag's the number one, number two, or number three industry in, in about 40 states, period. Uh, but, but it, you know, the point I was trying to make to him was this is a group of folks who are looking to you to help them with their industry. There, there is something that they heard in what you were saying on the campaign trail that, that appealed to them, uh, so, which I thought would be helpful, and I think it was. I mean, I think the president understood, hey, the farmers like me, which was clearly important to him, right? And so, uh, so that was important. That came across in that first meeting. Uh, the other thing was that set of priorities. I literally had a slide on each of those issues, and he asked great questions. He was really engaged. He wanted to know, hey, how can I leverage this role to be helpful? Uh, and then thirdly, uh, the funny thing that happened at the end, uh, he has a red button on his desk that has nothing to do with nuclear detonation. <laughs> Uh, it ended up being a button to, to call an aide uh, who came into the room with a Diet Coke. And so I didn't know what the button was. No one had warned me about the button. And about halfway through my chat with the president, he pushes the red button. And uh, I thought I could, could possibly fall through a trap door in the floor. You know, I mean, I knew that wasn't quite right. But still, I was like, what, what did he just do, right? Did he, did he essentially signal to somebody, get these guys out of here? And, and no. Uh, an aide came in with a you know a glass with a presidential seal and an open Diet Coke, and he poured it over the ice and gave the president a Diet Coke. So when I got home that night, of course, the main thing I told my wife was, we need one of those buttons. You know, that's pretty that's pretty cool uh, thing he had there. But uh, I, I will say this about briefing the president, obviously very nerve-wracking. Uh, there was a lot of preparation that went into it. Uh, it, a lot was said about disorganization of the Trump White House, but my experience was, and particularly working with the National Economic Council, 
we tried to follow the rules. So when we were going in to brief the president, any presentation materials we had, any slides that we had, any documents we were going to give him, we had circulated. Uh, and that's a whole that's a whole other ball game. There's an entity, there's a person at the White House called the staff secretary. And essentially no paper goes on the president's desk without being, quote, cleared by the staff secretary. So the idea is that if Andrew's got one point of view he wants the president to see and Ray's got a different view, uh, we make sure Andrew doesn't get in there without Ray knowing about it and having a chance to at least talk out, well, look, Andrew, if you're going to tell him this, I also think we ought to tell him that. Uh, and we followed those protocols uh, for the most part, uh, and uh, which was not always, frankly, to our advantage. I mean, there were certainly people that took advantage of jumping into the front of the line. Uh, but I say all that to say not necessarily to make any commentary on the operation of that particular White House, but just to say by the time you're sitting in front of the president of the United States of America and briefing him on a topic – multiple sets of eyes have seen the material that you are providing him and and have had a chance to to offer their own commentary on it and their own concerns i haven't mentioned all along and this was another place where to some extent in the ag room we were running against the grain uh, ag trade was number two on that list i mean immig- so so you know this is the job i got to do i got to talk to president trump about immigration and how we needed more workers in ag from other places i got to talk to him about trade and how dependent american farmers were on being able to unload some of that product outside the united states uh, and then i got to things like uh, immigration and infrastructure or uh, infrastructure and uh, and you know regulatory reform and things of that nature but uh, awesome experience wouldn't take anything for it washington dc is an incredibly difficult place to live very expensive uh you know traffic is everything everybody's expected it to be up there uh but pretty cool to drive in through iron gates at the white house and park and walk in and get a chance to go talk to the president from time to time so considering looking back at our presidents it's been really since jimmy carter that we had somebody that was truly probably from a farm some presidents understand ag better than others but for the most part you know their understanding wouldn't be great so tell me regardless democrat or republican then how is policy made? Is it folks like you and, and folks that you mentioned that have been in D.C. but understand agriculture? Maybe they've come up from farms and so forth. How is is it made? Because to me, it sounds like the presidents and past presidents are very dependent upon what folks like you tell them. Yeah, and I actually don't want to sound optimistic about that at all, Andrew. I mean, it's actually something I worry about. Uh, I would I would take a couple of more. I'd lay out a couple of markers first. One you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, there were obviously more folks on farms. There were more folks directly involved in agriculture, and therefore that was a larger slice of the electorate. So we had a better voice just purely in terms of numbers of being listened to by elected officials. If you were to go look now at the 2020 uh, census results uh, and eventually look at the maps that are being drawn all across the country right now for the congressional delegation, you're going to see smaller and smaller districts around those urban areas. Those rural districts are geographically getting larger. Uh, our ability to influence directly by electing someone off a farm or from a rural area is frankly waning, right? I mean, that, that, that's just the reality. And so I think that raises a couple of questions relative to your point, which is, you know, the, the association community becomes more important i know lobbying feels like a bad word but you know folks have got to run their farms they can't be in dc all the time so they've got to pay other people and pay in dues to associations that offer that representation i think the the challenge for us going forward is going to be um, and again i worry about this take the immigration issue for example 
no one seems to, from a policy perspective, oppose the notion of having more foreign workers do on-farm work, uh, particularly of a seasonal nature. There's a little more debate about year-round. But if, if that's the case, why has ag not been able to carve out a solution for its problem without that being tied to solving the overall immigration challenges and the overall border security questions? And I think the answer is we haven't had the heft to do it. Uh, it's not a negative commentary on those folks that have worked their entire careers in D.C. There's some really, really talented leaders in the ag policy community up there, both inside and outside the buildings. Uh, but I just think we have waning waning heft. It's harder to get attention. And frankly, that's what made Trump talking so much about farmers um, really an anomaly. And, and really, you know, and frankly, I got to be a part of that. I mean, I felt like when we celebrated National Farmer Day, when we wrote the proclamation for Ag Day, when we got the president to the American Farm Bureau convention more than once, that's that's really telling you about where the White House's head was. Uh, I don't know if a future uh, president from either party, uh, I don't know if he or she will ever pay that same level of attention uh, affection-wise. I mean, the, the, there, there could be debate about where the at the end of the day where the policy's best for the ag community or not, but certainly from an attention level, uh, it was pretty unprecedented. I mean, as you say, all the way. In, in fact, in the in one of the first days after Secretary Purdue was sworn in as Secretary of Ag, we had a farmer roundtable at the White House, which we did within the first hundred days of the administration. That had never been done. Uh, we actually, I went to the librarian at the White House and said, "Can you tell me the last time the president had a roundtable with a group of farmers?" And the closest we could find, uh, the most analogous situation was immediately after Reagan came in. Uh, you know, he opened up the Russian wheat embargo, and as a part of that day and the press around doing that, he, he brought a few farmers in at, at, to the White House. Uh, so, so, you know, I'm not optimistic that we're, we'll get, you know, get to have a really vocal seat at the table going forward. I'm also not necessarily fully convinced we have to. I mean, I, uh, obviously the, the farm bill is still our domain. That's going to be written by the juris- in the, within the jurisdictions of the ag committees. But even there, look at the fights we were having over the farm bill versus the farm parts and the food stamp parts, right? So, uh, anyway, I'm rambling, Andrew, but uh, uh, but I don't I don't want to paint a rosy picture at all for the outlook of ag policy in D.C. Just because I think, frankly, it tracks our it, it tracks the same sort of concerns we have about influence and culture in society generally. So to wind up, I'll make you take the other side of it. Then paint me the picture of how agriculture policy does become more important is it tied to things like climate change which are you know big types of words now i think even regardless of party you're hearing more about carbon programs and sustainability and these types of things how if this is going to happen how does the ag community have more heft i think's the word you used regardless of party yeah no i think the environmental movement uh is is a place the uh the, the addressing the carbon capture uh, stuff and and frankly, there was a really organized effort over the past eighteen months to go ahead and start doing that uh, who Who is it that 's going to monitor uh, the carbon capture market if you will it 's you know some very successful legislation already to clearly designate that duty over to usda I think another one uh, andrew is is the topic of uh, ESG investing. 
the the companies, the hedge from everybody from public companies to private hedge funds that are saying we want to put our money in a place that is going to make a difference ecologically, climatologically, uh, environmentally. We think ag is a place where there's room for improvement. We would like to help finance part of that. So there, that's a potential um, ally that, that we're not used to having, right, the investment community. So other places where it looks positive, I do think on the nutrition side, we've got to do a better job of making that our issue. We don't necessarily need to farm out the nutrition topic to, to the public health experts, you know, we have a role in that in terms of saying that we're offering a nutritious product. We, we want protein to stay in the game. Uh, so there's opportunities there, obviously, to, to do a little better than maybe perhaps we're already doing. I don't know. It's a great question. That, that's I would really, frankly, sort of start and end the same place you did uh, in terms of, of where there's potential alliances. Always appreciate the time, and I have a feeling we'll have more conversations to come at some point. That sounds great, Andrew. I've been a friend of yours for a long time and admire what you do and appreciate the opportunity to chat. Look for another interview with Ray sometime later this year. I know he's working on a book that shares more details about his time at the White House, but most importantly, ideas he feels farmers and those in agriculture need to know in order to succeed in an ever-changing industry. I'll keep you posted on that upcoming release. That's it for this edition of our show. Remember, you can hear all of our shows at farmingthecountryside.com, and you can get more information by following Farming the Countryside on Facebook. I appreciate you listening. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by the Top Producer Summit, coming up February 14th through the 16th in Nashville. Learn more at tpsummit.com.